Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Diamond Podcast on the WWWs. Dogs, we are the defenders of government schools, D-O-G-S, dogs. Uh, we have to be here on 3CR because um, government schools still need defending. Unfortunately, when we started this program in the 80s um, on 3CR, I think it was late 80s, 1987 I think, but someone I'm sure will call up and tell me I'm wrong, well, when we started this program, we didn't anticipate we'd be around for oh, 40 years, 30 years, um, 30 years on, on the radio because we thought that the government schools would be all sorted out by that stage um, and the federal and state governments would stop giving money to religious institutions and private education providers to segregate our children um, from pretty much from birth into various streams of education systems. We thought... My government could be that silly to keep funding that, but unfortunately they still are, so we still have to be on the radio. Things might change in the next week, so we won't be here next week, but somehow <laughs> I kind of doubt it. Yeah, so you've got myself, Robert, here in the studio, and we've got Dale here in the studio as well. Gina Mahade is taking a break, I'm not afraid, um, because she's, she's, she's dealing with some children. Yes, her children, her grandchildren to be precise, which she's spending some time with over Easter. And good luck to you, Jane. But we still have to be here because government schools still need a defending. Um, now, I referred back to the 80s. In fact, the dogs have been around since the 60s as an organisation before we even came onto 3CR because back in the very early days of the dogs, of, of the dogs they existed. Um, they came into existence for a very particular historical reason. During the 50s and um, during the sort of 100 years, even before Federation, the, the people of Australia decided that they did not want to segregate their children and subsidise... Um, religious education. The idea was, back in the 19th century, that every child in Australia would be given the opportunity to have a gold-class education and the taxpayers' money would be put aside to fund that and having funded that, they would attend a government school and those would be the only schools that the government would fund. Now, back in the dim, dark days of the 19th century, um, there were some religious extremists that refused to send their children to state schools. They thought these, these religious extremists, they thought that to send their children to state schools would mean that they, their children would, their special religious children would be mixing with the godless hordes and so therefore their education would be some substandard and so therefore these religious extremists decided to segregate their children off into their own religious schools and not receive money from the government to do so but to do so from the resources provided by their own religion. Now, these religious extremists, of course, were called the Catholic Church um, here in Australia. And so, historically in Australia, up until the 1960s, the Catholic Church had run a parallel education system to the state education system, which was not funded by taxpayers. So the schools were there, they were funded by the parents and by the churches themselves. And the teachers didn't have to be teachers, the, the teachers were nurses and priests, and other functionaries within, 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 this, within this religious organisation. But they ran a, a separate parallel state. The Catholic education system ran parallel to the state education system. It wasn't contained within it um, up until the 1960s. Now, this had a few problems, of course, because people who went and had their education, um, their, their religious education in religious schools that were Catholics, um, ended up having very substandard educational um, outcomes. Um, the children who went to Catholic schools were, were as well educated as the children who went to state schools. And for those people that are old enough to remember those times, and I must say I'm not one of them, but if you do, um, I'm told that the phrases were you'd have Mickey kids and proddy dogs. I'm wandering the street and the Catholic kids would fight the state school's kids and the state school kids would fight the Catholic kids and all well, kids are kids and that's just the way it was. Anyway, in the 1960s things changed. Um, our Prime Minister at the time in the 60s was a bloke called 
Robert Menzies. So he and I have a similar first name, but that's a thing about where all the similarities finish. Um, Robert Menzies decided that um, for, for some reason or another that because the communists were going to invade the entire planet, that he needed to have as many children in Australia being educated in science as best they can because science was going to solve the problem of communism because the communists at that time were having a far superior educational outcomes to the Western world and particularly in Australia. So um, what was it that Robert Menzies, he decided in Australia that he would fund in Catholic schools, which were this parallel education system, he would fund science laboratories so the Catholic children could learn all about science and evolution and all those sorts of things and maybe be in some strange way build, better at building rockets which could be fired, fired off to kill all the communists. I'm not quite sure what. Anyway, things came to a head in a place called Goulburn, um, a town that still exists in New South Wales. And in Goulburn, um, it became apparent that the Catholic schools in Goulburn were in a very poor state and that the toilets in one of the schools were in a substandard situation and some children got sick from old-fashioned um, sanitary uh, and preventable diseases. And the bishops of Goulburn said, well, we're going to close all these schools and we're going to send all of our children to the local state schools just to show how valuable we are to the country. The idea being that the state schools couldn't possibly cope with this influx of new Catholic students. And so therefore, they, they blackmailed Robert Menzies at the time. They blackmailed Robert Menzies into funding the Catholic schools. And this, that's what happened for the first time in the 60s, and as we now know in Australia, um, all private schools, no matter what religious denomination, and we'll be talking about all sorts of religious denominations later in the program, in particular Scientology, so all the religious schools now in Australia are funded by the government. And has, has, has been proved by Bernie Shepherd before he passed away and Chris Bonner in their groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking research, um, private schools are funded to the same level, if not more, than state schools. This is independent of any income provided by the parents. So, Goulburn. Goulburn was the place, Goulburn was the time. And the idea was that if you closed all the Catholic schools in Goulburn, then the government would have to spend more money to educate all the children which the Catholic system was educating functionally for free at that time. And that the government couldn't afford this if all the Catholic schools closed down en masse immediately, then there'd be a massive influx of students into the state school system and that the cost of the taxpayer would increase disproportionately and Australia would go bankrupt. So Australia, at that time in Goulburn, it was decided in the 60s, that to fund some of the Catholic schools would be financially prudent to do so. Which brings us to a really interesting article which has come up just this week in 2018. And the question is, what if Goulburn's Catholic schools were closed again today? Would the same financial question, which is, if you close all the Catholic schools, then the taxpayer has to pay more to educate the children in Catholic schools. If the Catholic schools in Goldman were closed today, what would happen? Now, of course, when dealing with the history of Australian education in the 19th century, historians have emphasised, for good reason, issues of church and state and what they regarded as sectarian battles, that is, battles over whose God is right, or if indeed God is right if there is a God. Now, history is the history of ideas, and the secularist educational settlement, together with the constitutional separation of religion from the state, are important themes that run all the way through Australian educational history. And I'd like to quote now Jean's word from her press release, 742. Um, and she goes on to say, um, but there were other very fundamental, practical and democratic issues that led to political leaders like Henry Parks in New South Wales in the 19th century, George Higginbottom in Victoria around about the same time, and others to place the future of the majority of Australian children in the hands of the state rather than the future of the majority of the children in the hands of the churches. They wanted all the children, not just those with the right religion or parental income, to be educated. Now, income tax was not introduced until the 1860s. But even with secure taxation income, our forefathers in the 19th century were conscious of limited budgets. Payment of overseas loans 
reluctance of the wealthy to pay taxes for the services of the less fortunate than themselves, and the need to answer for every penny of public money spent to Parliament. If you, if you go to, sh- to the documents of the 19th century, you can find exactly how many pounds, shillings and pence went to every single institution, went to every single school. Things have not changed that much, except that in 2010, citizens could not find out exactly how much public money was going to schools in the private religious sector. So we don't know. Today, we still don't know. In the 19th century, politicians were also confronted with religious men, especially the bishops of the Catholic Church who wanted public money, but with absolutely no strings attached. They wanted control of the curriculum that was taught in, in private schools and they wanted control of who they hired and fired. They rejected the idea of the state inspecting their religious schools and above all they wanted money with no accountability, that is to say no public control of how they spent their money. Now Henry Parks in the 19th century were, were Democrats but they were not medieval monarchs. They were not looking to funnel funnel the limited taxation into irresponsible hands. They looked at the situation. Private schools duplicated public facilities. And this situation of duplication was expensive, it was inefficient and it was inequitable. So they withdrew state aid to private schools. And in 1900 Australia led the world, in, in, in 20 years and 30 years after that, at the time of Federation, Australia led the world in the provision of education. Australians were the best educated people in the English-speaking world at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. Now, in the 1960s, the private sector, as I said, blackmailed the Australian governments and taxpayers into believing that they could afford to pay for the 23%, this is in 1960, of private school pupils in the public sector. The media at the time seized upon the drama created by the infamous Goulburn Strike. The religious lobby and the then DLP held the balance of power in Canberra and public money, starting as a trickle, soon flooded into the private sector as the private schools cried, we are poor, we are poor, poor us. But it was really, we just want the money, we just want money, just us, thank you. Now the public schools suffered grievously as governments favoured the private sector. And by the 21st century, the century we now live in now, the Australian nation has fallen well behind the international Joneses in educational standards. But, thanks to the MySchool website, taxpayers and citizens can finally get some idea of what is actually happening to taxpayers' money as it's channelled out of every public school in Australia. And the figures are there for all to see. Australia has now gone backwards to the 19th century. And whether we like it or not, politicians are being confronted with the plain economic and ideological facts of of life. Now, the dogs have been saying this since the 1960s, but we are now no longer alone in pointing out that state aid to private schools has failed. In 1964, it was even then the wrong way, and we needed to go back. Now, Chris... Bonner has written in an article in the Fairfax Press on the 28th of March 2018. He's written, By promising special funding deals for Catholic schools, Labor is reviving the earliest deal-making in the state aid battle. And what in the 60s did this compromise actually achieve? Well, we'll find out more about that, I think, after a few messages. You've got to remember, Nanox is a special day for us, fellas. Mind who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and either listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. Happy NADOC! Yes, welcome back to the Dogs program here on 3CR. 
855 on the AM dial. And I was talking about Chris Bonner, a friend of the Little Dogs Program, and what he was writing about the idea of the Goulburn schools, the Catholic schools in Goulburn, having their money hypothetically taken away today. And would it be the same as what, would ha- what, what happened in the 60s, back when they had the Goulburn strike? Now, Chris Bonner, he mentions that in a symbolic way, the federal government is funding for non-government schools. State aid, as it was known at the time, began 50, 60 years ago, and it began in Goulburn, New South Wales. At the time, Catholic schools were under pressure from uncertain finances and rising enrolments. In other countries faced with similar problems, including at the time New Zealand, they set about integrating church schools into their state education system. But Australia chose a different path. Australia decided to preserve their education and organisational independence while allowing them to become increasingly reliant on on government funds. Now, the Goulburn dispute began in 1962 when health inspectors insisted that extra toilets be installed in a local Catholic primary school. The school cried poor. They shut their doors and sent their 2,000 students off to the local government schools. Not surprisingly, there wasn't enough room for them. The state government surrendered, handing over funds to help solve the sanitary problem. It was a classic case of successful brinkmanship and helped create the funding mess that we have today. Another idea was born around the same time. The idea that governments were actually saving money by funding private schools. The notion might have made sense in the days when government funding was modest, but these days, in 2018, it's little more than a stubborn myth as the latest school funding figures on the MySchool website make clear. These 2016 figures, the the latest we have available today, mean that if we had an idea of what would happen if the Catholic schools in Goulburn shut their doors again and sent their flocks off to the local public schools. The MySchool figures show that the government provides well over $13 million in recurrent funding to three of Goulburn's Catholic schools in 2016. Each student attending Goulburn's Trinity Catholic College during that year was funded at $14,168 per student, which is more than the public funding that went to each school at Goulburn's Mulwari High School down the road. Now, Mulwari was chosen as the example in this because measured by the index of community socioeconomic advantage, or the ICSIA, is the closer of the two government schools to Trinity. If the 539 Trinity students had attended Mullawaree High School instead, the government would have spent an extra $7.5 million on that school, but saved $7.5 million to spend if they had done so. So what we're saying is that if the Trinity Catholic College had closed and all the kids had had to go to the Mullawaree High School, then the government you, me and all the taxpayers would have saved $7.5 million. Now each student attending St Peter's and Paul's Primary School in 2016 was funded at $10,549, which is well over the $9,200 that the kids at the Goulburn West Primary School down the road get. So if St Peter's and Paul's Primary School, if those 241 kids had been kicked out of their Catholic school and had attended the Goulburn West, the government would have saved two and a half million dollars. That would have gone if they, well, has gone because they are going to the local state school. So this is fascinating. Here's another example. St Joseph's Primary School was funded at $9,960 per student, which is higher than $9,284 going to the kids at Goulburn West Primary School. If those 300 or so kids had attended the, Gul- the West Goulburn School, they would have saved, well, the government would have spent about $200,000 less. So, not, not millions, but $200,000 less. That's pretty cool. That's going well. Just in Goulburn, if you, if, if you shut down all of the Catholic schools in Goulburn, you will save yourself whoa, a massive... Let, let, let's add it all up. That's two and a half, seven and a half, click, 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 click. $10 million of taxpayers' money if you close those schools down. If you shut them down, you are spending less money 
taxpayers' money. This is independent, by the way, of parental contributions. Now, combined, the cost of government to government of all the students in Goldman's Catholic schools was a bit over $13 million. And if these students had attended the local government schools, it would have been about $12 million. Okay? But it's a massive saving. Now, these calculations are conservative. They assume that the recurrent cost of the transferred Catholic school system would be the same as per student cost in the government school in which they are enrolling. In, the, in, in reality, the costs will be lower for two reasons. First, students in the Catholic schools are measurably richer. They come from measurably wealthy families. They are more advantaged on average than the students in the government schools in which they are, which they are being enrolled in, if they were, if the schools were to close down. So the per-student cost of combined enrolments would actually be lower. And second, the calculations don't take account of the economies of scale that would come from increased enrolments in the Goldman's public school. I would add that by sending them to the local government school, you're not paying for the Catholic bureaucracy, which lies above all of these, all of these schools, where people paid for by the taxpayer to run the system, which is run, of course, by the local bishop. Now, of course... If you were to actually do this, money would need to be spent on expanding accommodation of the public schools. But my school reveals $12.5 million in federal government funding and capital improvements in the three Catholic schools between 2010 and 2016. Along with recurrent funding savings, even a portion of this investment in the area of public schools would certainly ease the burden of accommodating a large number of students in a state school. So what Chris is saying there... We have spent, as taxpayers, $12.5 million in the last six years on making these Catholic schools look schmick and be good. So once we stop spending that, I'm sure we can spend it on putting up a few more classrooms in the local state school. Or I would even hesitate to say, if I was the government and the Catholic school system in Goldman was shut down and we didn't fund it, there'd be some really nice prime real estate with some really nice classrooms on it which could be made available, of course, at a reasonable price to da, 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 the state school system. Why did it go away? Just buy it off them at a discount price. Now, is Goulburn typical? Anyone can check the My School website and reveal about his or her local schools, but the most meaningful comparisons are between schools that involve similar students, as indicated in Australia by the ICSIA value. On this measure... The vast majority of Catholic schools in Australia are publicly funded at between 91 and 99% of the level for similar government schools. And this, of course, rises to over 100% in many cases, especially here in Victoria. Why might it matter? Well, Catholic and independent schools are currently funded as if they are public schools, yet they are clearly not public schools. The significant increase in support has been accompanied by only minor increases in accountability, so they are essentially remain as private as they were back in 1962. Now, Goulburn's Catholic Schools, funded at more than 100% of the rate of government schools, has no obligation to serve all of the families of Goulburn. Their charging of fees alone is enough to ensure that they don't. At the very best, they are accessible to half of the families living locally. On average, they enrol the more advantaged and the Catholic or otherwise. And they control use discriminators. And they can use discriminators. Mostly, these discriminators are illegal to, to, be, to be used in the public system. Quite rightly, too. Catholic school can deny a request for enrolment of any student who poses a challenge, that is, is difficult, or is more costly to teach. And they can be shunted off, of course, to the local state school. And the town's Catholic schools will rarely mention in reports on incidents at schools school behaviour problems and suspensions because they aren't covered by freedom of information legislation and they aren't required to divulge such information. So in their own ways, Goulburn's Catholic schools probably try to even out this more tilted playing field. But Australia's schooling network, a patchwork of governance structures and processes, financial incentives, obligations, responsibilities and accountabilities, pull in the opposite direction. The results are absurd enough when private schools get 90% of, uh, they're 90% public funded, but they make a mockery of fairness when, as in Goulburn, private schools receive more government money per student than their public counterparts nearby. This is a sleeper issue in the interminable debate over school funding. 
The pressure on Catholic school authorities to accept a wider range of obligations in return for public funding can only increase. It's a good reason for them to be careful in pursuing more funding, even if they try to present it as a restoration of previous funding models. Leaving aside comparisons within Australia, our Catholic schools are now funded at similar levels to their counterparts in New Zealand, but they do not have anything like the same obligations. The government's welcoming to resolve the introduced the school resource standard funding is already under pressure and could easily be corrupted by existing proposed special deals. It was ever thus. In reporting on the actual dollars that end up in real schools, rather than what was projected to happen after previous changing to funding rules, my school shows how good intentions often dissolve in the face of vested interest. The risk that this is all about to happen again. The solution needs to include a major review of the extent to which all publicly funded schools, government, Catholic and independent alike, have equal obligations to the taxpayers who fund them. Until this happens, nothing else. Nothing else is going to change. And this is what I have always said in response to what Chris, Chris Bonner and Jane Carroll have written there. Um, on, on, of course, um, uh, it's actually the Fairfax, Fairfax website that they've published that from. This is what I've always said. If you have two systems, one of which is exempt from the laws of the country and the other, the other one of which has proper state school values, which is to say, if you live here, you come here, and a system that says, uh, you only come here if we like you or if you behave well, or if you're the right religion, or, or the right skin colour for that matter, um, or the right anything, because all private schools can just say no and not have to give any reason because they don't have any FOI requirements. If a state school said, no, you're not coming here, we don't like you, they have to show good grounds for purpose. In fact, there might be some in some cases, um, but the idea of a state school doing that straight off the bat without any Without, without any, any form of obligation or accountability is just unheard of. It's ridiculous. It's, 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 it's against the grain of what education should be. That very process is inherent in what private schools do in this country. No, you can't come here. Why not? You don't have enough money. Or we don't like you. Um, you haven't got the right references. You don't have the right family. You haven't booked in. You know, any private school can say this. Any, and there's no accountability. They can just say no. And you ask them why. They go, we don't have to tell you. Go away. So Chris Bonner's right, but the second step, of course, is to just not give them any money. That just solves all the problems to straight up. Um, and when you've got people like Bill Shorten saying, we're just going to give the Catholic sector an extra $250 million just because. No reason, just because. It all just gets quite stupid and ridiculous. You've been listening to The Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the ANDL. Let's have a little bit of music. And then after that, Dale's got some comments. <laughs>
Dogs program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs. Here at the Dogs, we go through reviews and analysis of the schooling systems, plural, of Australia and how, in fact, there should only just be one. I should be here talking about the schooling system and be sitting here for an hour talking about the great stuff that state schools do, which I will be talking about just in a little while. But before then, Dale. Thanks, Rob. I've got an article here by Trevor Cobalt. Uh, it's uh, entitled Census Data Reveals High, S- High Social Segre- Segregation in Australian Schools. Analysis of the 2016 census data shows stark social segregation between public schools on the one hand and Catholic and independent schools on the other. The analysis by researcher Barbara Preston shows that that social segregation in Australia's, in Australia's schools has increased markedly over the past 40 years. Students from low-income families are highly concentrated in public schools, while those from high-income families are concentrated in Catholic and independent schools. Preston also notes that there are issues relating to census undercounting and non-applicable family incomes and that the incidents likely affect school sectors differently. As a result, the concentrations of low-income and other disadvantaged students in public schools and of high-income students in private, especially independent schools, are probably understated in her analysis. Income segregation. Preston's analysis shows that 75% of low-income students attend public schools in 2016, compared to 15% in Catholic schools and 10% in independent schools. 80% of students in the lowest family income range attended public schools, compared to 12% in Catholic schools and 8% in independent schools. Preston's analysis also compares the social composition of public, Catholic and independent schools. It shows that 43% of students in public schools are from low-income families compared to 26% of Catholic school students and 24% of independent school students. In contrast, only 27% of students in public schools are from high-income families compared to 44% in Catholic schools and 51% in independent schools. It is apparent that Catholic schools are similar to independent schools in terms of family income. Only about one quarter of all students in Catholic and independent schools are from low-income families, and the proportion of students from high-income families in Catholic schools is only a little below that of independent schools. Certainly, Catholic schools are much more like independent schools than public schools, despite claims by Catholic education authorities that Catholic schools are similar to public schools. The pattern of income segregation is broadly similar across all states and territories. Low-income students comprise a much larger percentage of public school enrolments than in Catholic and independent schools, while Catholic and independent schools have much higher percentages of high-income students than public schools. Low-income students comprise 40 to 50% of students in public schools in all states and territories, and about 20 to 30% of enrolments in Catholic and independent schools, except the ACT, where the proportions are 26%, 12% and 10% respectively. The proportion of low-income students in Catholic schools is similar to that of independent schools in all jurisdictions, except the Northern Territory, where the proportion in Catholic schools is over double that in independent schools. High-income students comprise 20 to 30% of students in public schools in nearly all states and territories, except in Tasmania, where it is 17% and the ACT with 48%. High-income students comprise about 40 to 50% of enrolments in Catholic schools, except in Tasmania, where it's 32%, and in the ACT with 66%. 
high-income students comprise about 50 to 55 percent of independent schools in most regions except for Tasmania, where it's 43 percent, 61 percent in the Northern Territory and 73 percent in the ACT. Preston's analysis shows that there has been significant change in the social composition of public schools since 1976. Students from low-income families increased from 35% of enrolments to 43% in 2016, while those from high-income families fell from 31% to 27%. In 1976, public schools had only a slightly higher proportion of students from low-income families relative to students from high-income families. The ratio was 1 to 16. However, the ratio has increased to 1 to 49 in 2016, only slightly below the high of 1 to 53 in 2011. In contrast, the proportion of students from low-income families relative to students from high-income families in Catholic schools fell significantly between 1976 and 2001 and has been relatively stable ever since. The ratio of low- to high-income students fell from 0 to 73 in 1976 to 0 to 56 in 2001 and was 0 to 55 in 2016. The proportion of students from low-income families relative to students from high-income families was very low in independent schools in 1976 at 0 to 23. It increased significantly to 0 to 40 in 2006 and there was a small increase to 0 to 44 in 2016, but it is very much lower than that for public schools. The increase of the proportions, the increase in the proportion of low-income students in independent schools was largely due to the expansion of low-fee Anglican and Christian schools. Other forms of social segregation. Preston's analysis also shows that the proportion of other disadvantaged students in public schools is about double that in Catholic and independent schools. Indigenous students comprise a much higher proportion of public school enrolments than in private schools. In 2016, they constituted 6% of public school enrolments compared to 3% in Catholic schools and 2% in independent schools. More than two-thirds, that's 68%, of all Indigenous students in public schools were from low-income families, compared to around half of all Indigenous students in Catholic and independent schools. The analysis also shows that 81% of all Indigenous students attended public schools, 12% attended Catholic schools, and 6% attended independent schools. 86% of Indigenous students from very low-income families attended public schools, while just 8% attended Catholic schools and 5% attended independent schools. The proportion of disability students in public schools was nearly double that in Catholic and independent schools. Disability students accounted for 4% of all students in public schools compared to the 2.1% in Catholic schools and 2.4% in independent schools. Preston notes that the ABS census definition of disability is particularly narrow. Adjusting the census data by the definition and data from the ABS survey of disability, ageing and carers estimates estimates of the percentages in some specific categories who have a disability are 11.5% of public school students, 6% of Catholic school students and 6.9% of independent school students. Students who speak a language other than English and do not speak English well or at all made up fewer than 1% of all students in 2016. These students were most most likely to be from low-income families and be attending public schools. They comprised 1.1% of public school enrolments compared to 0.4% in Catholic schools and 0.6% in independent schools. In 2016, 
5% of students in public schools did not have access to the internet at home, compared to 2% in Catholic schools and independent schools. There are also higher proportions of students from one-income families, students who have less secure housing tenure, and students who move schools more often in public schools. The report concludes that across a range of student characteristics, in 2016 public schools had greater concentrations of those students whose schools require extra resources to provide them with equal educational opportunities. These students with lower family incomes, these are students with lower family incomes and also students with disabilities, students who do not speak English well or at all, students who cannot access the internet at home, students who have less secure housing tenure and students with greater geographic mobility. Moreover, the public sector's share of enrolments has fallen from 79% to 64% since 1976 and the concentration of students from low socioeconomic backgrounds has increased. Thank you very much, Dale. You listen to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dale. I'm back to tell you about a great little state school. Every week on the Dogs Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State schools. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Today we're going to have a little chat about Footscray West Primary School. Yeah, Footscray West Primary School. It's a great little school actually there in the inner west of Melbourne. And Footscray West Primary School is a fascinating school. For all those people who think they know Footscray, um, I've got a few surprises for you. First thing I've got to tell you is this school is awesome because it's educating 400 or so kids for under $9,000 a year each. So I tell you what, value for money. It's the amazing little school when it comes to that. They are not spending much money, but are they cash strapped and, and, and full of horrific poor people and all that sort of stuff and everyone, everything's terrible so you have to send your child to the local private school because it's all rubbish? No! It's brilliant! Then that plan results in reading in year three are way above the national average, not just for all similar schools, but for all schools in Australia, the teachers there are doing a wonderful job. And I don't know what's going on with the mass teachers over there at Footscray's Primary School, but they are caning it. They are doing a wonderful job with the students. Uh, their writing and their spelling and their grammar are all fine too. So it's a good little school if you just look at all the test results, but that's not, of course, how you judge a school. Not. Look, the students at West Footscray come from a very wide range of social, cultural and economic backgrounds. Um, of course, they celebrate this variety as they do in all state schools because they don't say, no, you're not welcome, you're too much trouble, no, you can't come. No, it's a state school, they take everyone and they celebrate this fact. The focus of the school is directed towards basically improving literacy, numeracy and social competencies which is a broad way for living the good life if you're a Socratic kind of philosophical person. Reading, writing, and living a good life. Now, the kids in this school—it's interesting. They're interesting makeup when it comes to their Ixia values, because 84% of them come from the richest families in the country. That's a lot. Footscray, remember Footscray? If you haven't been there for a while, it's changed. Certainly, Footscray was primary school. 84% of them come from the richest quartile. The um, social Ixia value is 1,090 over 1,000, 1,000 being the mean. And that's there's some really solidly rich kids there. But what kind of kids are they? 36% of them come from a language background other than English. So it's still a very strong cultural mix. There's a lot of languages spoken in the school, a lot of languages spoken at home. It's absolutely... Basically, or they also have a, well, my, my bugbear, a well-being program which aims to assist students through the whole primary prevention thing, which means that behaviours are an issue in the school and they're being dealt with proactively. Whereas, of course, in a private school, they deal with behaviours by saying, yeah, we'll try and fix it. If we can't fix it, get out. Can't fix it, get out. We don't want you anymore. You can go off to the local state school. 
in the state school, of course, they are assisting students through primary prevention and also developing social competencies. And at that school, they actually value parent participation within the classroom with regular use of parents as helpers across the program. And, of course, they have a strong sustainability focus to see large commitment for parents to improve the physical environment. You see, it's a good-looking school. I've been there. It's a very good-looking school because the parents are involved in making the school somewhere that the parents can be proud their children go to, not by spending money to some private education provider, but by getting in there and doing it themselves. So now you think with a very wealthy parent population like that, because they are wealthy parent population like that, you say, well, what's going on there? Are the parents kicking in with some extra money, extra sort of sneaky fees? No. Nope. No, parents' charges, fees and contributions for the year are around about $246 per kid. So that's not a lot of money to contribute over a year. That involves things like books and, and general contributions, but they are contributing with their time. Parents are giving time to the school. They don't have to give the money if you get the time. And anyone who knows with education, what's better, time or money, when it comes to educating a child, of course the answer is always if you give a child your time, it's better than giving them some money. So congratulations, Footscray West Primary School. You are our great state school of the week. Want to defend government schools? We are the DOGS, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the DOGS program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State College. schools are great. Harkaway Primary great School. State Sunshine schools. North Primary School. They're really school. concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? It's actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's who, that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that he's actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long, don't necessarily start off with a Positive great deal. relationships with each other, with teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 9419 State schools are great schools. Great state schools. Welcome back to the Dogs Program. Oh, look, it's always good to have great news. Congratulations again to Footscray West Primary School. And congratulations is too tiny a word for the work that goes on in the school year after year after year after year because school cultures aren't something that happen overnight. They get built up over a generation. So congratulations to the tiny word. Deep thanks to all those involved working there out at Footscray West Primary School. So from something interesting and good to something interesting and a little bit disturbing, um, I'd like here on the Dogs Program to report what's going out down the Werribee at the moment, and it's a little bit disturbing. Um, I'm sure we're going to hear more about it as time goes by, but there's been a consortium that's been put together that's proposing a $31 billion high-tech city in Melbourne's western city fringe. Um, and they're actually asking the Victorian taxpayers to chip in a billion dollars to set up a rail line to go to this new, this new massive suburb they're going to build at East Werribee. Mm. And you go, fair enough. So what? Now, various documents that have been leaked to The Age and being reported in The Age on the 28th of March by Clay Lucas and Simon Johansson show that this new city of the East Werribee, $31 billion and an extra billion dollars that we have to cough up to build a rail, is entirely underpinned by money from... The Chinese Communist Party, led by a bunch of Scientologists. So a Scientology-led consortium with links to China wants the Victorian government to fund a $1.2 billion direct rail project to what they call, and this is why we're talking about it, an education city in East Werribee. 
called the Australian Education City. It's a company with close ties to the Church of Scientology but little experience in large-scale development. It wants to build a university city in East Werribee that will bring more than 24,000 new overseas students to Melbourne. The consortium is negotiating with the government for two years over the purchase of the publicly owned East Werribee land. Now, in 2015, the Victorian government was offered $340 million for the land, which was hundreds of millions of dollars more than any others were willing to pay. They were offered this, of course, by the Australian Education City. Uh, now, where's the money coming from? The money is coming from da, 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 companies very closely linked to the Chinese Communist Party. Now, documents obtained from government and industry sources reveal for the first time by the age, and now here on the DOGS program, the degree to the which the new city will be backed by state-owned Chinese enterprises. Now, it's being spruced by J.P. Morgan, and um, J.P. Morgan last year told potential investors that the state-owned Chinese enterprise called Power China was a core $3 billion backup just to start with. Other strategic and financial partners in the project include the Chinese Development Bank, that's the State Bank of China, China Railway Construction Consortium, China State Construction and CITIC Constructions, all of which have links to the Chinese Communist Party. The multi-billion dollar whole project um, called the Australian Education City claims to have been negotiated as one of the keystones of China's much vaulted Belt and Road Initiative. This initiative is the signature policy of new new life president Xi Jinping and it aims to strengthen Beijing's economic power through the vast construction of programs in all the countries in China's neighbouring regions, now including us, now including Werribee. The Australian Education City Plan includes a proposal to bring three Chinese universities to Australia. To counter the concerns within the state cabinet here in Victoria over the plan, the company has employed lobbyists, Hawker Britain, to use its Labor Party connections to target key Labor Party MPs here in Victoria. Now, some ministers have serious doubts over whether the project can be delivered by the consortium, but there are also worries over the strong focus of China and, of course, what I mentioned before, Scientology links. Now, among the consortium's minor shareholders are Emmanuel Foundas, a former Victorian president of the Church of Scientology. Another director, Ross Martinson, has also been heavily involved with the Church of Scientology. Now, if this whole thing fulfills all its promise, the Australian Education City will deliver a high-density, high-tech education precinct with university campuses, homes and several thousand people. So the whole thing is, I think, rather fascinating. I think it's all rather interesting. Uh, the new city, they say, would attract 24,000 new overseas students to East Werribee and employ 90,000 people to service those students. So they think it's all wonderful and it's all big. Um, the company has, since launching its bid, recruited John Tabbitt, the previous head of the Docklands and Barangaroo. Barangaroo is in Sydney, by the way. That's the one that Packer built his big casino over development as its chief executive. Now, in terms of local education partners, Victoria University have signed memorandums of understanding to be part of the project. Deakin University have also decided to be partners with the Chinese government. La Trobe and Swinburne are also signed up. Um, well, this is according to what the consortium has actually told the government. It's understood that both Melbourne University and Monash University don't want nothing to do with it at all. And the Finance Minister, Rob Scott, here in Victoria, selected the consortium as the preferred bidder in 2015. On Wednesday, Mr Scott, the Minister's spokesman, said the proposal was still under consideration. Mm. Money talks. <laughs> Very loudly, it seems. So we're going to keep our, our eyes on that, because I'm not quite sure that here in Australia we want a massive city in Werribee um, controlled by uh, a bunch of Scientologists and the Chinese government. It's all a bit worrying. It's interesting. Actually, I don't want to actually... I don't know enough about it. Um, here at the dogs, we're going to do some more investigating, and when we find out, I'll tell you more about it. But on the face of it, yeah, all I can say is that money seems to be talking quite loudly. We'll see how far it goes. But until next week, of course, it's at, that's it for us here at the Dogs Program. If you want to contact us or find out more, you can, of course, check us out at our website at www.adogs.info. www.adogs.info. Um, um, and catch up with us there. But, of course, just to remind you that performing as of a few days ago and performing right now, 
The Song for Simon Birmingham, who had our guests here in the studio. Uh, Song for Simon Birmingham is, is performing at La Mama um, through the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Tickets $30.30 or $20.30 if you're a concession. Certainly worth be going and seeing. I'll, I'll, I'm, I'm going to go and see him tomorrow. It's going to be great fun. Yeah, so, yeah, a song for Simon Birmingham. Yes, yeah, so a sort of an, an, an investigation about the dumbing down of, of the arts in Australia by our ridiculous politicians up in there in the little hothouse in Canberra. But until next week, of course, for the Dogs Program, it's bye for now. Says he.